Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, the treasurer on the committee, and today I'm delighted to be introducing the amazing Ruth Shaw speaking to Tessa Nicholson. Ruth Shaw is a much-loved Manipuri writer who has found happiness running three tiny bookshops in her garden. Ruth discusses her wonderful book of stories about her extraordinary life and quirky bookshops, the bookseller at the end of the world. There's time too for Ruth and Tessa to share recommendations for sparking up your reading love life. Thanks to everyone who made the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival such a success. We're already making plans for next year's event and are excited to share more details with you soon. For now, please enjoy Ruth Shaw speaking to Tessa Nicholson. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kat. And, um, yeah, Morena, good morning and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival. I'm sorry, you have to... I just have to apologise. I had a stroke five months ago. I was very emotional, so please just bear with me. We have a box of tissues because Ruth's exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> Although she hasn't had the stroke. Um, but um, if you, any of you feel like you need a tissue, the box is here. We just ask that you put your mask on before you come up and grab it. You can take your mask off to blow your nose. <laughs> That's fine. Hey, I'd just like to thank everybody for being here because I know a number of people have taken a day off. I hope your bosses don't find out. And a number of people have also travelled here, none more so than our guest of honour, Ruth Shaw, author of the bookseller at the end of the world. The book, she's actually travelled all this way from Manapuri with her husband Lance to be here. Probably fair to say it's one of her most sedate journeys in her life. So Maureen and Ruth, and welcome. This is actually Ruth's first ever book festival, if you can believe it, so Marlborough is very proud to have her. <laughs> that word sedate is not a word that's probably ever been used when referring to you, Ruth. You have been a pig farmer, a counsellor, a sailor, a chef and a navy wren, going AWOL. I've always loved that acronym and I've always wanted to meet somebody who went AWOL. <laughs> and now I have, and not only have I met you, not only did you go AWOL from the navy, but you also sailed the Pacific, started a business in Papua New Guinea, encountered real-life pirates, not the Johnny Depp kind, probably more the Amber Heard kind, I would suggest. Ruth has been, as I say, a pig farmer, a counsellor, had, had four husbands, or had, she's on her fourth husband. She has worked with prostitutes and drug addicts. She's been a threat to Sydney police, so much so she had to leave Australia for her own safety. All these life-changing events are well chronicled in her memoirs. These days, sailing in pirate-infested waters are no longer on the agenda. Instead, Ruth has settled in Manapuri with husband Lance and now has three bookshops in her backyard, hence the title of her book. So you've decided to spend your twilight years managing three bookshops. I can honestly say this is a romping good read, but that's not to say that your life has been all fun and adventure. It hasn't. There's been a rape and the adoption out of your son, the death of one husband in a car accident, and the death of your second son at only 13 hours old. For many, these tragedies would have destroyed them, but they appear to have spurred Ruth on. 
And with bookshops now and Tiar now, three of them, what on earth made you decide to do that, to open a bookshop? Well, I opened my first bookshop in Manapuri um, around about um, 18 years ago, and it was called 45 South and Below. And that was in conjunction with, that's my husband there with the orange mask on, um, in conjunction with our business, Fiordland Ecology Holidays, we ran a charter vessel on the Fiordland coast and down to the Subantarctic Islands. And then when we sold our business, I closed the bookshop and after a few years I really needed an excuse to buy heaps more books and I was also missing book people. So Lance said to me after some time, why don't you just open another bookshop, love? So I did. I opened another bookshop and then I opened another bookshop and then I opened another bookshop and I've promised him that I'm not going to open any more. But I have got an idea for another one. Oh, they're tiny, the bookshops, as we'll see in the photos as they go round. Yes. You had them specially built. Yes. Why was that? Well... They had to fit in your backyard, obviously. Well, they're in the kind of the front yard, and it's in Manapuri on a corner, so it's on our property. But I didn't want to have to go through council to get permission and permits and everything, so... When I spoke to the builder, I said, I want it so that it will fit with inside the, rec you know, the regulations that were correct and acceptable and with really, really good, strong shelves to hold about 700 books. And so he did that. It did a ma an amazing job. So that's my first bookshop. And then that was obviously too small because I had just two shelves of children's books and I was having lots of children coming in, laying over the floor reading books and I thought, God, I need more bookshelves. And I said to Lance, I need about this much more bookshelves. And he said, oh, yes. And so I thought, why not build another bookshop? So I had the children's bookshop built, which is really a lot smaller and... Um, a very small door and it's painted red so it's for children but lots of adults go in there and so then I found that am I rambling? No, I'll tell you all. So oh, then I found I've got a great stick here that I've yes, told that her she if she gets out of control she's threatened I'll, to knock me out if I I'll tell her off if she's rambling No, you're good so, so then I found that not many men were coming into the bookshop and I have a lot of farmers and shepherds come into the bookshop and if they see people in there and they're a little bit smelly, they say, oh, Ruth, I won't come in. So where they are outside, but they're undercover and they've got their books in a cupboard or something. So I had my third bookshop um, built and one of the farmers said I should have called it the Smelly Farmer's Bookshop. But... <laughs> I didn't think that's that another was book in the making. <laughs> the Smelly Farmer's <laughs> Bookshop. The, the Smelly Farmer's Bookshop. So where did this love of reading come from, Ruth? From my grandmother and mother, and I've still got lots of those books. You actually talk about books in 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 your own book almost with a religious fervor. You talk about your mother's book and running your hands over it, yes, and just lovingly remembering her turning those pages, yes. Um. 
you, when you travel, when you went to Australia, you, you had four tea chests with you, with all your belongings. To went to Australia and back to New Zealand, and I believe there were a number of books in those. How many books in two those? Two tea chests full. Two of the four were full of books. Yeah. What sort of books? Oh, everything. Um, one of the strangest questions I get asked is, what is your favourite book? Mm. Well, I've got a library full of my favourite books, and I've got many favourite authors as well. I read a book and I think, I really need at some stage to reread this book, because if it's really, really engaging, I read it quite quickly, and then if the second time you read it, you pick up all the nuances in it that you didn't pick up the first time. When I read a book and I think I must read this again, it kind of gets goes to a tea chest. Yeah, it goes into a tea chest. And yeah, so I'm supposed to be downsizing because of my age, um, but I'm actually my library's still growing. How many in the in the bookshops? One thousand two hundred and fifty. Well, there'd be more than that now because I've got three bookshops. So in the main bookshop, I've, I've had more and more shelves built and then I put tables outside and I've got shelves built on the side of the building so I can have about 1,300 books now. 1,300. And then I've got the children's bookshop that has usually about two to 300 books and the Smelly Farmer's bookshop that um, has usually about 100 books. Have you read all of these books? No. Oh. Oh, I'm <laughs> oh, supposed to say gutted. yes. Yes, you were supposed to say yes. Oh, no. No, you haven't? No. Do you read most of them, though, so that you know what's in your library? I sort of um, had expected that you might have read them before you put them on the shelf so that you could recommend them. Oh, well, all the holiday reading. Is that going? Is it going? Yeah. Good. Um, I've got so many bits here now that I might, I might end up strangling myself. <laughs> I'll come and rescue you if you do. <laughs> Chaos. Chaos at the Melbourne Book Festival. Oh, God. <laughs> Are you going to put your own book on the, on the shelves? Um, well, Lance, as soon as the books arrived, he paid for the first book that I sold so that he could say he bought the first book. Book number one. Oh, that's yeah. beautiful. I hope you signed it. To husband number four. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually one of the things that we talked about before the microphones went live, is not to mention the names of the husbands as they are in the book because they're not their real names. Please refer to husband one, two, three, or four. And when I made some comment about one, she said, oh, I don't know which one that is. Who, who, who are you talking about? I said, Peter. And she said, oh, that, yeah, that's husband number one. So if she talks about husband number one, two, or three, three you'll or understand. Four. But four is here. Four so is that's sitting it. here. We can call him Lance. We can, yeah, can he, he's the only one with the right name. Oh. Can I just tell you a really quick funny story about husbands? Yes. When, when I had the interview with Kim Hill about two years ago, um, and she kind of prattled on about four husbands, and um, after I, I hung up, the telephone rang, and this very foreign voice said, is that Ruth? And I said, yes, and he said, I'd like to be number five. <laughs> oh, you got proposed to over the phone. What did you say? And, and I said to Lance, listen to this. And he said, I've just listened to you on the Kim Hill programme. 
and I'd really like to be your fifth husband. And I said, well, I'm really happy with my fourth one. Well, I'd be and careful, Lance. <laughs> you know, uh, reading it, you know, it's the bookseller at the end of the world, but I actually, having read it, thought it could have easily had another title, The Art of Running. You know, age seven, you ran, understandably, after being raped. You ran after giving birth to a son that was taken from you for adoption. You ran from the Navy. You ran from an imminent wedding, first wedding to Lance. You ran, I could say, from three husbands, <laughs> whose names we won't mention. You ran from businesses you established. In hindsight, and do you ever look back and wish you had stayed put at a certain stage in your life instead of taking the choice to run? No. No, no point in the end? I thought you might think your life might have been a bit different, not as chaotic. Well, it wouldn't have been as chaotic, but um, I think I had to do that to learn how to live with what was going on in my life. And I think the saddest thing was when, I, when Lance and I broke up when I was 21. Um, but I always felt that, especially in a relationship, that at some stage I was going to hurt that person unintentionally. So you left before you so could do that? So I left. You do say in your book that, quote, I was always suspicious of anything that came too easily and needed some friction to work with. Were you the one that created the friction, though? Absolutely. Mm. So you, and you, yeah. your, your grandmother used to say to you, you <laughs> want to be good, Ruth, but you just can't. Yeah. And you... You, you, that's followed you your whole life? Yes. Mm. Do you think the chaos and the running is all to do with the rape at the age of 17? Or is there something else that sent you running? I think that the rape changed the whole structure and essence of my life. And any woman here that has been sexually abused or raped will understand that. But I didn't want it to overwhelm me and... Um, but prior to that, I don't know, it, my sister Jill, is the nuns used to say to her, you'll make a perfect nun. And she they had, never said that to you? They never said that to me, no. When I went to a school reunion and I went up to Sister Mary Patrick, she said, oh Ruth. <laughs> oh, did she ask what you'd done with your life? <laughs> no, she wasn't interested. <laughs> you see, because I was chaos at school. When, when I was about nine, we, we had a two-storey school building and it had shiny concrete upstairs with shiny concrete veranda and we used to skate along there around the corner, leap on the banisters and slide down to the second floor well, and we weren't allowed to do that. But what happened with me one time was that I leapt on the banister and leapt straight over and hit the concrete floor and so the priest came and gave me you know, the final rites. <laughs> and, the, um, and the nuns were pouring Lourdes water over me. And then they drove, the priest drove me home. And, um, and I had this huge, I think it must have been fractured because quite often afterwards the side of my head would blow up. And I had this huge black eye and I thought I was going to lose my eye. And so it just seemed that things happened. You know, I didn't plan to leap over the banisters. And as a child, nobody, no child plans to be naughty. It's no, just, they don't. No. It just happens. Yeah, it does. Yeah. That's a good excuse. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Um, but you also, at another point, describe yourself as, or you describe an event as being too much to unravel 
and you only ever wanted to look forward and go, go, go. Yes. Admittedly, that was after husband number one's death and the death of Joshua at 13 hours. So maybe that's understandable. But it is part of your nature, isn't it, to go, go get it. For every terrible thing that happened, and and actually somebody pointed out to me that when you, you did run, but you seemed to run into adventure, whether that be sailing on the Kati Sark or buying magic, your own boat, or going back to Manapuri and, and getting your captain skipper so you could run the, drive the tourist boats. There were yes. a lot of adventures in your life. Yes, I would have... I didn't see them as adventures. I just saw them as a way of coping, really. Did you think yours was just a normal life for your age, um, each era? Well, I knew I wasn't kind of normal... That was really pushed onto me when I ended up in the psychiatric ward. I knew it definitely wasn't normal there. Um, but that was admittedly after an attempted suicide. Yes. I, I think it took me a long time to realise that my life was different than most other people. You say at one stage in your book that your mother actually gave you, you know, knew, knew that and gave you the permission to run and be who you were. Yes. You nursed her for... A number of weeks. In her four months. Four months when yeah. she was dying of cancer. Yes. That must have been a special time for you. And that was that was a time where you really did sort of create some form of calm and peace in your life. It was. And I had time with my mother that, um, and if any of you have nursed a loved one who is really sick, and you know that it is the last opportunity you've got to share and to be totally honest with each other my mother told me lots of things that I couldn't understand as I was being brought up and one of them was why the police were never involved when I was raped and I can't tell you that story because of the implications of that so it was also all of a sudden realising that my mother had carried an enormous burden and that burden was me because I was always racing off and doing things and mum always stood up for me. Well, you, at one stage when you were overseas and I think it was in Papua New Guinea, you wrote a letter and you wrote at the very bottom... <laughs> please worry. You please worry and you forgot to add the word don't. And, and, <laughs> and poor mum... Rece- yes. And Dad received that, and th- they were worrying anyway. Yes, and this were. was around the time where you met the pirates. Yes. Can you explain what <laughs> happened with the pirate incident? The Amber Heard version, please. <laughs> uh, we were sailing through the Java Sea, and I was thinking about this when I was at your speech last night. And I was thinking, you know, I was on a little 30-foot yacht, just two of us, and I thought, I'm going offline here. I thought, if we had have come across a boat full of refugees, 430-something, what the hell would have we done? Because if we had have pulled alongside you, you would have sunk us because you would have all tried to get onto our little boat. And at that stage, the radio communications were very poor. So I was thinking about that last night. I also thought about a whole lot of other things. Where did you go to the toilet? How much water were you carrying? All those practical things. But anyway, back to the pirates. Um, Java Strait. Yeah, Java Sea. So we had been warned that there were pirates in the area and that 
prior to this, an American boat had been sunk and very luckily the pirates had let them get into their life raft before they sunk their boat. Very and they generous. Were, and they were picked up. And so we decided to take a different route, but they caught up with us anyway. I was up for it, and, excuse my language, and mm. Mike, who owned the boat, said, um, drop the main route. And I thought, that's stupid. We're going along really nicely here. And then he said, drop the fucking main route. And I turned around, and there was this little boat coming along beside us with this great big gun on the front. And I thought, oh, you're right. So You dropped the mainsail pretty quickly. I dropped quick the mainsail really, really quickly. The jib came down, and, and we had talked about this, and we had hidden a lot of... We had hidden money and our passports. And what did they want? Did they... Well, they took... They kind of took... Um, paint and ropes and whiskey. some charts and food and the whiskey and I, I don't even drink but Mike was really upset when they took the whiskey. Yeah, my husband would be too. Yeah. yeah, But they shared a glass with him. Well they shared, they opened a bottle and shared it with Oh that Mike was very generous of them. I know. <laughs> so have, we, have a glass of your own whiskey. So we had said, right, if we pirates if somehow or another we get boarded by pirates, we're going to make them very, very welcome we're going to smile, we're going to let them take whatever they like and, you know, let's hope it works. And, that, and it did. And that's how I managed to get the photo. I yeah, just I mean, I find this bizarre. You actually asked them, can I take a photo? Yeah. And they agreed. <laughs> I know, they posed. <laughs> they posed for me. And Mike was saying, fuck's sake, Ruth, let's just get out of here. And I was saying, no, we'll be able to take this to the police. So you could identify so, them. Yeah, so we could, crazy. So I took a photo of them, and then they just buzzed off. Did you ever feel when they were there that they, your life was in danger? No. So they were actually quite gentle, nice They were pirates. lovely. Write mm. home to mum about them. Don't yeah. worry. Don't worry. Uh, I've just met pirates. <laughs> what, and what was the response of the boating community when you finally came into shore? Well, they said that we were stupid going that way. There weren't many boats going that way at the time. But then you came into the marina and you parked in front of the... Jakarta yacht club, yeah, and then, and then got we, got, we got done over again. And you lost the second bottle of whiskey. Yeah, that would have been absolutely gutting for Mike. <laughs> um, we're going to have a reading, but this we, Ruth and I were just talking before the session, and I don't know how many of you were here last night when Abbas Naziri talked. Um, he talked, Abbas, you talked about your next-door neighbours being Romanian and how having a, a pig made them very, very wealthy. Well... Ruth and I thought that this might be an interesting session because she was a pig farmer, so she was exceptionally wealthy. <laughs> I was not. <laughs> I wasn't exceptionally wealthy. To a Romanian, you would have been, and a pirate. Yes, I would have. I would have been. If I, if I had have been um, any part in Afghanistan, I would have been exceptionally wealthy. So I, I'm, I'm getting married to the Italian and his parents, we got married at his parents' home, and they gave us all the practical presents. So, his parents bought us sensible, practical wedding presents, sheets, saucepans, towels, and mixing bowls. My father bought us a large, white, pregnant sow. I named her Howard after my father. I often wondered how many other women were given a pregnant pig as a wedding present. Howard turned out to be a very bad-tempered pig who destroyed fences, dug up the waterhole, demolished her house minutes after Tony had built it, 
and generally demanded continuous attention. I was convinced she needed company, so I searched for someone else in the area who had pigs. I finally found someone who had three sows, a boar named Boris, and more importantly, room for Howard the Horrible. Michael from Belgium, who had been in the Foreign Legion for many years before becoming to Australia with his wife to live, he loved pigs. He was incredibly fit and incredibly precise about everything. Once a decision was made, his focus was unwavering, his work worth ethic unquestionable. Together we established, we decided to establish a free-range pig farm. Now you have to remember that this is about 40 years ago. With four sows and Boris. Boris was a huge, gentle black and white boar who absolutely loved everyone and everything. He didn't have a care in his small world as he was living a life made in heaven. Eventually we found we formed a partnership and registered the piggery under the name of Waipapa. Registration meant we were able to borrow $3,000 from the bank and we bought more sows, much to Boris's delight. By 1978 we had 22 sows, 3 boars, 37 wieners and 49 suckers. Imagine how wealthy she'd be in Romania. Mm. Yes, I would have been very wealthy. So I ended up, in the end, having about 150 pigs. Did you enjoy it, that, that outdoor it. And, and the breeding of it? I loved it, but I hated having to send them away Way. Mm. to be slaughtered. Did you name them? Yes. Apart from Boris? Well, no, no, I didn't name all the piglets, but all the sows had a name, and the, and the boars had a name. Did yes. somebody warn you that's a bad idea if you're going to send them away? <laughs> Poor old Daisy. Nice to see you today. Well, I'll eat you tomorrow. Yeah. But I was a vegetarian. Oh, that probably helped. <laughs> it helped considerably. When you were writing the book, I mean, I know I shed a lot of tears, and as I say, I'm very emotional, but I shed a lot of tears reading it. What about you when you were writing it? Well, um, I found some parts of it very difficult to write, and so I... I would sit quietly and depending on what part of the book it was, if I was writing about Joshua, my son, I really felt I wanted to have Joshua there. And when I wrote about my son that I had adopted out, but the people that were with me the whole time were my readers. And I put that in the front of my book when I signed books that Without your readers, you haven't got a book. You've, you've written a book, but it doesn't become a live book until a person picks it up and reads it. And so I kept on thinking of the people that would possibly read my book and how will they, how will they feel when they read this part? And if I was crying, then will my reader cry and I don't want to destroy my reader in any way? And if I'm laughing, will my reader laugh? So my readers were with me the whole time I wrote this book. Was it cathartic, writing it? Parts of it were, yes. Do you feel now that you, you've stopped running and you can just be Ruth? Because of writing the book? <laughs> Looking at Lance. <laughs> you don't say you're running to that man, husband number five, please. No, I'm not. I'm no. not. No, yes, I, I really, truly believe that. 
that the, and the book has helped that by getting it all out? Um, I think how it's helped is that um, my family understand me more because my family didn't know a lot of my story. Um, my friends understand me more. So I think, yes, it's been... Um, I think I'm easier to live with. It must have been a nervous time having written the book, thinking about how people would react to it, people in your life, like your sister Jill, <laughs> husband Lance, Lance's son Dane, your own son Andrew. Yes. It must have been a nervous time thinking, what are they going to think? Did that, was, was that, is that a true summary? Yes. And my sister, I, I actually had to change some of the book because my sister said that, what was her exact wording? Um, to protect the family name. And I thought, oh my God. Um, so I had to change some of it, especially about my, the grandmother that taught me how to gamble and how to play cards. I had written a, a chapter on that because it was huge for me at my age to be learning how to gamble. And you were age six at the time. Yeah, started at the age of six. Mm. And though I never gambled for money then, only matchsticks. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and of course gambling came into my life. I've never been a compulsive gambler, but when I've been short of money, sometimes I've gambled. And um, my sister didn't want me to put that in there because her, her idea of our grandmother on my mother's side was that she was very loving and caring, whereas with me, she was very strict. And if I didn't hold my cards right, she'd hit me across my knuckles. And if I didn't, if I smiled, if I had a good hand, she would, Ruth. And if I put the wrong card down. So I had a totally different mm. conception of my What grandmother. sort of games was she teaching you, Yuka? Poker oh. or what? Poker, euchre, 500, crib. And the, this did, in, in lots of ways, save your life. I mean, when you were in Tahiti, you... Yeah, when I was in Tahiti. <laughs> you vagrant, you. Police arrested you on vagrancy charges. On vagrancy, yes, they did. So, but you did play cards to yes. get money to buy clothes and... Yes, I did. Mm. So, it was, so, it was a, so dear grandma, actually, yes. was a very... And I ran... I ran um, card schools in New Guinea and cards were banned in New Guinea. You used to run schools? You'd yeah, I, well I had a little coffee shop called the Appetizer and because there was lots of single guys in Rebel when I lived there that were working in banks and things and so I started a breakfast club and um, then I found out that a whole lot of them liked to play cards and I thought oh great so we decided that we would have twice a week a card night in the in the shop in the shop, shop in the and okay. so we we had illegal card nights in the shop gambling even though Papua New Guinea banned it yeah. um, you talked before about how getting it your story out into the open people have understood you you just told me earlier and we don't know no names in it but that you got after after you wrote the book somebody rang you an 82 year old woman who had carried a secret for 70 years. Yes. And nobody understood her, but because no. that was that was a problem and how she thanked you. That must be the most lovely thing, to have written a book and get response like that. I, what I, one of the 
things that I wanted to come out of this book was to give men and women the courage to talk about possibly a secret in their life that they think they'll be judged on and maybe lose friends if they tell it. And so I really wanted to get across that it doesn't really matter what you've done. You know, good friends will stand beside you. So I received this letter from this 82-year-old woman and I've written back to her. It was a beautiful handwritten letter, pages of her saying that she had read my book and that at the age of 82, she now had the courage to write to somebody, who was me, to say that she had been abused at the age of 12 and she had never told anybody and she'd been continually abused, sexually abused. And so she wrote this beautiful letter to me and said she wanted to thank me for writing the book and for giving her the courage to write this letter. And I sat down and I wrote back to her and I said, I'd really love to quote from your letter, but I want your permission. I haven't had an answer back as yet. But when I got this letter, I thought if nothing else comes out of my book, this here is gift enough that this woman had carried this for 70 years mm. and at long last before she died she was able to express what her life what the secrets of her life so as a book reader and you have you know loved books all your life did you ever ever contemplate writing a book think that you could have written a book oh yeah I always knew I could write I've got diaries full of writing. Yeah, that's, write. you do. You quite, I figured you must have kept pretty good journals or diaries. Yes, I did. Very, it's very quite, you're good. quite succinct in yes. things that happened. I've got masses of diaries and also I'm a hoarder. A hoarder. Yeah, so I've got like every paper, bit of paperwork that I've carted around. I've still got the registration for the piggery. <laughs> yeah. And I've got... Thankfully we haven't got the, the sow still. No. <laughs> That, that could actually be a nice addition to the backyard and the bookshops. <laughs> You've got Cove the dog and Catherine Mansfield the, yes, bird, the bird, so why not, yeah, why not a pig? Howard the pig. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about um, books, writing books, you've actually recently written a children's book and it's about to be released, I believe. Oh, no, not really. Well, I have. I wrote a book. <clears throat> I... I wrote a book years and years and years ago about a dragon that lives in the Fiordland Mountains in a cave. And um, I then put it aside. And then I, I, a friend of mine did some beautiful illustrations for it and he had a stroke and he couldn't draw anymore. So I put it aside again. And then last year, <clears throat> a lovely lady came into the bookshop and she wanted to become an illustrator for children's books. And so I sat down with her and I said, I want you to read this and if you think you want to, to draw the rest of the drawings for it or the artwork for it, I'll self-publish it. So that's what I did. And I've been mainly giving it away. I, I'm not good at selling my own things. Lance goes into the bookshop. I can't sell my book because I, I don't know. I, I'm just, I just can't bring myself to sell it. But Lance comes in and he says see this, my wife wrote this it's really good, it'll make you cry it'll make you laugh, you've really got to buy it, and I'm going well done Lance 
and they buy them. <laughs> and I creep out of the bookshop and think, oh, God. <laughs> well, you haven't... You, you, know, you spoke to Kim Hill you know, a few years ago and she was the one that sort of said to you, you really need to write your memoirs. Yes. And then Alan Alan and Alman came in after that. You um, you don't need to sell it. You just need to... People just need to hear your story and they'd want to buy it. It's an incredible book. And um, Thank you. you. It is for sale out in the foyer. And after the session, you're very welcome to grab a copy and Ruth will sign it for you. She just asks, please that you wear a mask and sanitise and do keep social distance. Well, we're just about finished, so any questions from the audience? And could you please wait? We will have a microphone um, because, this is, because this is going to be a podcast. We want to hear the question so that the Ruth's answers don't just sort of come through the ether and sound a bit strange. Any questions? Look at that. Oh. Oh, you've answered everything? Stunned. We've st- stunned them into silence, Ruth. Lance is going to ask one, no? No. It's <laughs> a rural question. Where did you live when you had the piggery? I lived in a little town called Urella, which is, well, it was in New South Wales, up in the Tablelands, um, not very far away from Armadale. Oh, here we are. Good. I'm glad we haven't stunned everybody. <laughs> it's the threat of that stick, you see. Thank you. It was wonderful listening to you speak, uh, both of you. Um, what is the name of the children's book? Belush the Dragon and Slosh Mouth the Witch. Uh, and if we do want to purchase, where could we get it from? Well, Lance. <laughs> Ask Lance, he'll be able to sell it to you. <laughs> He's probably got copies under his chair. No, he hasn't, actually. I can't see them. Is it out there? No. No. You're very modest. And oh, I just feel embarrassed. Why? Not embarrassed. I feel, um, yeah, embarrassed. But you've written a book. Oh, another question. Oh, from a uh, If you ask Lance, Lance will sort you out. Uh, Ruth, uh, you've obviously lived and travelled around the world extensively. What's kind of your place in the world that really sticks out to you for good, for bad, special places? You know, where, do, where have you found, I guess, home? In home Manipuri. Yeah. Manipuri. Manipuri. Manipuri is home for you? Yes. Yeah. Of all the places you've travelled to? Yes, there are some amazing places that I've loved and I've gone back to, but they don't give me the sense of um, peace and belonging that Manipuri does. A lot of things have happened since you've been there. I suppose one of the biggest ones is actually reuniting with your son, Andrew. Yes. How has that been? How is your relationship now? Brilliant. Is it? Yeah. So he's based in Wellington? Yes. And you see him often? Yes. We're staying with him on Sunday night. He's very different than me. He looked, he, he's got the same wide mouth frog smile. And um, he's left-handed like my sister. We look very much alike, but he's kind of tall and blonde like my father. But he is, um, I'm green, he's blue. Um, He, as far as, um, you know, I'm a conservationist, he isn't. yeah, we've got a lot of differences, but we've got enough in common that we're very mm. close. 
Has he ever spoken to you about how he feels about finding his birth mother? Yes. He, he, he wanted to find me and he had spoken to his parents about it. And then when Father Brian Sherry went and said to them that I had seen him, um, my son was very excited. It must have been great for you to know that he was actually trying to find yes, you. Yes, it was. At the same time that you were trying to find him. Yeah. It wasn't a one-sided... And it was like, I think I put in the book, it was like going on a blind date. I didn't know what to wear, and I, didn't, and I don't wear makeup, and I didn't know whether to wear makeup. I didn't know anything. And but you'd kind of stalked him, hadn't you? And you'd seen his yes, I had. adopted mother, and she was quite flash. Yes, she was very flash. Mm. She was a very beautiful, tall Dutch woman, immaculate. And no chaos in her life. No chaos in her life. No. No, so as soon as we saw each other, we just knew. That's so so we were really, really lucky. So is there, are there more memoirs to come? Picture book perfect. Picture book perfect. And that was it. Oh, that's a lovely way of putting it. Oh, another question, sorry. Uh, yeah, good day, Ruth. I've been to your, um, your bookshops in Manaporia a couple of times. <laughs> and the impression I get is that there's like a sense of joy and curiosity of the people that are there. Like they want to talk to you, they want to catch up, local gossip. Could you speak to like the power of uh, books in the sense of like community and bring people together and stuff like that? Yeah, look at this. Yeah. Three books. Yeah. I think because of the colour of my bookshops, they're all these bright colours and I have things hanging everywhere and I've got lots of plants, a lot of non-readers come in and have a look at the bookshops and a lot of people come in and say, can I just take a photo? But the non-readers that come in, they usually go away with a book. I either give them a book or they buy a book. And this to me is really important because there's so many people now that, especially younger people, that they don't actually hold a book. They have e-books mm. and audio books, but they don't actually hold a book. So I think what, the, what my, I, I'm sure a lot of bookshops do this, that you can introduce people to a new world and you know when a person loves a book because they'll come into the bookshop, they'll look for one of the older books and they'll pull it out and then they'll go, isn't that wonderful? Mm -hmm. And then there's other people that just, like I do, you just hold it. And I say to people, they say, oh, look, I don't read books. I'm not here to buy a book. And I say, that's fine. And then I talk to them and then just like... Um, after a while, I think I know a book that will introduce them to the book world and I'll run into my library and I'll grab it and I'll say, I want you to read this book. And it's interesting. Can you give us the names of some of those books that you give to people who, you, who say they aren't book readers? What do you start them on? Well, in there, there was the young guy that grew dope. Yes. So I gave him about Bogor. Bogor. You all Bogor. know about Bogor who grows, yeah. who grows marijuana in the in the pine forests 
and so then he read it and then he started collecting them and reading them. Um, the pilgrimage of Harold Fry, which um, that young guy was tramping and his boots reminded me of Harold Fry. They were falling apart and um, he just kept on walking, Harold Fry. And I felt that this, that's what this guy was doing. So I gave him the book and he said to me, I said, you know, leave it in one of the huts and he said, no, I'll keep it because you gave it to me. And then there was, um, what's that beautiful book with the little sayings in it? I've, said, I've written about it in here too, that I gave to the fireman from New South Wales oh, yeah. who had been told he had to go on leave because the, the firemen were so exhausted from those big fires a few years ago in New South Wales. And he didn't read books. And he came into the bookshop and I actually closed the bookshop for him and brought in the open sign and he wept because he thought he had let his fellow firefighters down. And he said everywhere he went he smelt smoke. The name of the book that I gave him is a little book with beautiful drawings in it called Pure Logic. And I went and got my copy and I said, you don't have to read this. All you have to do is look at the pictures and underneath there's usually just three or four words. And... Um, and he put it in his pack and I never heard from him again but he said that it was really sad because he was crying and Lance bought us a cup of coffee each and he said yes but you know you, you've closed the shop and I'm sorry and I said no that's what a bookshop's about it's about being with people and, and talking to people and understanding people and and he went away with this book and I just thought, you know, that's what my bookshop's about. Amelia. Hi, thank you very much. Um, am I right in thinking that in the introduction, Tessie, you said um, that you've been a counsellor, Ruth? Did I hear that yes, correctly? Yes, I was. So do you think your counselling background has evolved into your bookshop role as well then? Yes, talking? definitely. I was a counsellor in King's Cross. Probably don't get too many pimps or prostitutes coming into your bookshop in Manapuri <laughs> or drug, drug dealers. Oh, I have one male prostitute. Came in to the shop. Oh, he actually lives around the corner from us now. Oh, right. <laughs> he, he rents from us. Oh, right. <laughs> no more questions on that one that I can think of. Everybody, I'd really like you to put your hands together. Ruth has never done a book festival before, so this, this is a big, big thing. You're awesome. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you. Thank you. And the box of tissues is hardly used, so that can be, come for another session. So Ruth will be able to sign books, please, but just wear a mask and sanitise. Thank you And thank very, you very much. much for coming out on a Friday morning. Really appreciate it. And thank you, Ruth and Lance, for being thank here. Thank you, Tessa. That was Ruth Shaw speaking to Tessa Nicholson at the 2022 
Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do recommend it to friends and family. Thanks for listening.